the night. Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our actually getting to be pretty big list, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how's it going tonight, my friend? Matty Lasers, I'm doing great. I'm, I've had a, a fantastic week because I tell you, I've had a religious experience. Do tell. I got called to the top of the mountain and I met with the God of comics. Mm-hmm. And he gave me a list of rules for this podcast. And I've got them right here. Please bless us with these commandments. Rule number one. This is a League of Shadows podcast. That's canon. It's been established. This is the word of the comics God. Rule number two. I'm going to try to work the word butthole into every episode. Now, see, this, this, no, 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 no. This doesn't count. Ah, okay. That, that, that's too easy. That's too easy. There. And finally, rule number three. Batman only has to make an appearance in a story for us to talk about it. Yes, I can absolutely agree with that. And, and I'm glad the God of Comics came to me this week because that rule is germane for tonight. It, but we'll get to that. We absolutely will. Because this week, we're discussing something that some would consider against all Batman orthodoxy. Three times where Batman loses. There are fans out there who believe that Batman is infallible, that Batman can't lose. I am a gigantic Batman fan. I think this whole project pretty much is indicative of that. You you started a Batman podcast. That puts you in like the 1% of Batman fans. Yeah. But a Batman who never loses, who can't lose, that's boring. Any character who can never lose isn't human and is dull. A character has to struggle. Let me ask you this. If we're doing stories about Batman losing, was I supposed to read Nightfall this week? No, no. Nightfall has its own place later on. That will be a whole Ah. thing. Ah, good, good. I'm glad I read three other stories instead of Nightfall. Good. Yes, indeed. So tonight we're going to start off with the story that the comic book god, I believe, was coming to Will to let us know that it was okay that we were going to be discussing the original graphic novel, Wonder Woman, The Heiketia, written by Greg Rucka, pencils by J.G. Jones, inks from Wade von Grobadger, colors by Dave Stewart, letters from Todd Klein, and edited by Bob Schreck and Michael Wright. Cover date on this one is August of 2002. In this graphic novel, a woman comes to Wonder Woman invoking the Heiketia, an ancient Greek ritual that places her life in Wonder Woman's hands. As it turns out, she is fleeing Gotham City and Batman because she is a murderer. There's a lot of layers to why she did what she did. But in the end, it puts Batman and Wonder Woman on a collision course about how to deal with this 
ritual, this woman, and the ancient Greek powers that have been invoked by it. This is our first story by Greg Rucka, who is a creator who's written a ton of Batman stories since the very late 90s. He'll still pop up writing the occasional Batman story even within the past few years. Uh, he writes really strong mysteries. He's a, he was a mystery novelist first before coming into comics and also writes a lot of spy comics and books and a lot of noirs. And he's a writer whose work I really like. Uh, he's also got a long history with Wonder Woman, having done a couple of runs on that title as well. This is one that you initially mentioned, Will, when we were talking about episode ideas. Yeah, I, I read this a few years ago when I was doing a piece on Wonder Woman, like talking about the, the best Wonder Woman pieces. Or I read it to prep for an interview with Rucka when he was coming on to Rebirth. Uh, one of those two. I, I read it and enjoyed it. Uh, obviously, I read it this week and still enjoyed it. But if you've never seen this cover, once you see it the first time, you're going to never forget it. I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, this, this is Alex Ross, right, on the cover? I'm not sure if it's Ross or if it is a fully painted J.G. Jones. Because it feels like a good copy of Ross, if it's not. Yeah, I'm going to go and I'm going to check that. I'm pretty sure it's Jones. Um, huh. I think it's painted versus traditionally colored, but I am not seeing any credit on it other than J.G. Jones. Huh, go figure. Well, yeah, anyway, so the uh, the cover for this book, and maybe it's not the cover for all editions, or... I'm pretty sure it is, because I've got a first edition hardcover of it, and every edition I've ever seen has that same cover. Ooh, first edition hardcover, very nice. It's a Batman title, Batman-related book that came out sometime since the mid-80s. I probably bought it off the racks. Early 90s. Early 90s bought it off the racks. Anyway, anyway, this cover, and again, Batman, and we'll, we'll talk all about this, Batman is not a central character. In this. this is a Wonder Woman story, we'll be honest. But the cover is Wonder Woman's boot on Batman's face, and it's fucking hot. It's just a good cover. You know, a little bat chat after dark. It might be your thing. You know, if it is your thing, God bless you. But uh, it's just, it is just a great looking cover. And it speaks to the theme certainly tonight of Wonder Woman just straight up beats him. Beats him physically and beats him morally. Because, you know, again, we'll, we'll talk about this. This is not a very complex Batman. This is a Tommy Lee Jones in the fugitive Batman who says, I don't care. I, you know, I'm, I'm just here to bring you in. I don't care. You know, you murdered too many people for, for my taste. I have traveled to DC, question mark? Yes, I believe Wonder Woman is headquartered out of DC at the Themyscira Embassy at this point in her arc. But, but yeah, he, he gets, again, beaten physically, beaten morally. He is involved at the the unfortunate resolution of this story. And he, he does not come off well in this piece. No, I mean, Rucka usually does write a more nuanced Batman, but for this story, he is the antagonist. 
he is, you said Tommy Lee Jones, he's Javert. He is the tunnel vision cop who only sees the letter of the law and not the spirit that it should exist in. And this book reinforces something that few stories have really touched on, but it's always something that I've believed. When it comes to the other heroes and threats to Batman, it's not Superman that Batman would have a hard time taking out. It's Wonder Woman. Superman... Supes is a dingus. Yeah, Superman has lines he will not cross. Superman, he'll just sit there and he'll let you pound on him until you tire yourself out. Diana will flat out knock you on your ass. Diana will kill. And she she won't do it as a first resort. It might be her last resort, but she'll do it. And she will do it nobly and she will do it because she is a warrior. You do not fuck with Wonder Woman. No, no. In uh, in Hikatia, Batman fucked around and he found out. He does attempt to pull a little bit of a Batman gambit there at the end. But even there, you know, he's clever. But Diana is just like, no, not going to play your game. Not going to play your game. Uh, you really you really thought you could outthink an, an immortal Amazon princess who's been around for hundreds of years. Nope. It is a, a beautiful book. I mean, J.G. Jones hasn't done a ton of Batman. He's not an artist who's done a ton of comics because he's notoriously on the slower side. But when he releases a book, it's always gorgeous. You know why he might be on the slower side? Because there is detail on every single page. Every single page. And that's what I really love in a, in a good quality book. Like I was looking at this specifically. There's a, a scene on you know some DC street and there's a truck. And the truck is like Joe's plumbing. He didn't have to put that in there. You know, he could have just drawn his truck and then, you know, moved on to the next panel. But it feels like a real world that is lived in and that has character. And that just really impressed me, the level of detail in literally every panel on every page. Every person in a crowd scene is a person. There isn't, you know, kind of a blurred, you know, yeah, these are just backgrounds. Like, no, he gives them a face and a body type. They are all distinct. Even if they're there just for one panel, he draws the hell out of everything. And God bless him for it. The, the book is just a visual treat. And I think, you know, certainly we can say this is, I don't know. I don't know, but I won't speak for you. But again, it's one of my favorite Wonder Woman stories. But, 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 how do we start to talk about this as a Batman story? Because that's what we do here. We talk about Batman stories. I think we need to lay out the central problem that Diana and Bruce are fighting over. And that is the character of Danielle Wellis. Danielle is the young woman who murdered four men in Gotham City and then fled to D.C. to make the Hikatia this ritual that places her as a supplicant to Diana. 
And the book opens with her killing the last of these guys and her getting away from Batman, which in itself is that's impressive because you're just some person and you got away from Batman. But eventually we get Danielle's story. We get why she did it. And there's a lot of references in this book to Greek tragedy. And Danielle's story is a tragedy because Danielle killed these guys because when her sister came to Gotham City, they trafficked her, got her addicted to drugs, and then she overdosed. It's not clear if they basically gave her a speedball that was just bound to kill her or if she just overdosed. And I don't think it particularly matters. But she found the men who trafficked her sister and she took vengeance, except to her, it's justice. And that's the the question here. For Bruce, very specifically, it's not a person's place to take a life. Taking a life always crosses that line from justice into vengeance. And for Danielle, and I think on some way for Diana, that's not the same moral absolute. The one note in this story that seemed off to me was that when Daniela, Danielle? Danielle, I believe. Danielle. When Danielle comes to Wonder Woman and engages in this Greek tradition, in the aftermath, there's basically a don't ask, don't tell sort of vibe. Although Danielle says, I- I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you exactly what happened. And Wonder Woman's like, no, I don't need to know. That's okay. And then Batman shows up and lays out, you know, his side of the story. And then there are a couple of pages where Diana gets a little bit frosty and I'm reading along and I'm thinking, you said you didn't want to know. You didn't ask. How could you be upset if you didn't ask? So I thought that was, that was one strange bit, but again, that's not, that's not a theme that persists very long, but ultimately Diana does not shame her for, for anything uh, that she did. And importantly, it was the Greek gods that drove Danielle to do this. Yeah. The Furies are the central mystical thing here. And the Furies are outside of the gods, but are in some ways more powerful than the gods. In in the mythology, the gods never want to cross the Furies because the Furies have a sacred duty beyond that of the gods. And that is they avenge the spilling of family blood. They're a central figure in a few ancillarily DC comics, very specifically the Sandman. So here they specifically go after the spilling of family blood, but also the breaking of sacred vows, which is why they're here. Because Diana has made this Hecatea, this pledge. And if she violates the Hecatea, the Furies then can go after her. And that's Basically, they're lo- this looming presence for the entire book, just standing outside the Themyscira embassy, looking at her. And it's very clear they drove Danielle to Diana because they want to take her down a peg. They want to lower her hubris, or at least I think what they view as her hubris. Yeah, they, they certainly seem to view this situation as one that she is doomed doomed to fail. And, and maybe that's, that's where we get the conclusion. Danielle realizes that there is no way out of this for Wonder Woman, and she she voluntarily sacrifices herself. 
which uh, brings home the whole theme of you know tragedy. Bruce tries to invoke the Hecatea himself after Diana has defeated him in combat. And she refuses because just because someone has made the supplication doesn't mean that the supplicatee, I think that would be the phrase, has to accept. And from there, Bruce is just like, okay, that's fine. But that just means you and I are going to be doing this forever. There's a Sisyphusian vibe to that, which is, again, this Greek thing that Bruce will continue to bash himself against the wall that is Wonder Woman until he breaks. That is a very Batman thing. The drive to keep doing what he believes is right, even if in the end it will break him. I think in terms of the characterization of Batman here, we could have had just a taste of why this was so important for him. You know, uh, Wonder Woman is not one of the oldest allies, right? This is not, say, maybe him going to war with Superman. But it seems like if you're going to fight a bestie, you need to have a pretty good reason. And he does not listen to Diana at all. He does not say, oh, okay, let me hear about this ritual. Tell me, explain it to me, explain your obligations. Let me tell you mine and we'll... We'll try to work on a compromise. No, it is. I'm going to try to push through you to grab Danielle. And then we're going to, I'm going to haul her back to Gotham. Like there's none of that. So it seems like there just has to be more of a reason than she killed, you know, a handful of dirt bags. Yes. Bruce doesn't always respect certain laws in general, but at the beginning or throughout most of the book, Danielle is in the Themyscirin embassy. Every time he tries to break in there, he is violating the sacred sovereign territory of a nation of immortal warrior women. Seems like a bad call. It, it really does. But I give Rucka some wiggle room on that because, again, Bruce is the antagonist. Bruce is a force here and not as much a character. Exactly. And it would be interesting to have seen this story from Bruce's perspective, but I don't think it would have benefited the story. And frankly, with how we see Danielle, there's very little Bruce could say that would make anyone sympathetic to let me drag you back to face the criminal justice system in Gotham, where I'm sure one of, if not more, more than one of these traffickers who are now dead, their organization has bought judges and lawyers and everything else. And this woman would be railroaded for a crime that pretty much everyone who would hear the story who is not motivated by avarice would they would understand why she did what she did. Fiction is so nice because you can create these characters that just deserve to die. That was a that was a good killing. And and real life is is not that not that neat. Um, no. But yeah, it, it's, it's easy to look at those dirt bags and say, good job. And, and then, yeah, you, you talk about like taking her back to Gotham and then standing trial. Very easy to see a situation where she doesn't survive even, uh, you know, prison. This would not end well for her. And again, in a story that was a Batman story, he would have probably done something to try 
to mitigate that. And I understand why Rucka didn't do that here, but it's not necessarily my vision of Batman, but for this story, it works. And he loses in the end. He doesn't get her from Diana. I mean, her taking her own life to end this is tragic and painful but it suits the story it suits the tragedy that this was built to be and diana cries diana diana didn't win either there are no winners in this story except for maybe the arrhenius maybe the furies and as a random little note it is interesting that diana calls them the arrhenius the furies the entire time as opposed to the humanities the kindly ones which was the euphemism that the Greeks used because you didn't want to cross them. So you called them the kindly ones, which that comes from the plays, the Oresteia, Agamemnon, the libation bearers and the humanities. That's my theater history degree coming into play. Ah, aha. <laughs> I got to uh, use it somewhere. Man of classics. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I don't know any of that shit. So good on you. Good on you. And, and you know what? I'm going to believe everything you just said. I'm going to assume that it's right. And if it's not, I don't give a shit. I mean, I look, I appreciate your background, but I'm not going to go check it for myself because I want you to be right. I appreciate that. And so I think we've come to the end of this first segment. So, Will, shall we? Time to put it on the bard. All right. Right now, after seven episodes, our list of 21 stories Begins at number one with Batman Year One. Right smack dab in the middle at number 12 is Blades, Legends of the Dark Knights, number 32 to 34. And all the way at the bottom is Superman and Batman versus Vampires and Werewolves. Spit. (laughs) So where are we thinking? This is a really good comic. Yes. But... As we've said, it's not the most Batman story. So I don't know if it can go up into, say, the very top echelon of stories here. We're going we're gonna to be thinking about the, the tippy top tonight. But for this, I just I can't because it's, it's not a Batman story. It's not. Uh, it is a Wonder Woman story, but it is the, one of the very best Wonder Woman stories. Yes. Uh, and it's a good read. It's it's a fabulous read. It looks great. It reads well. And it's a joy to, to pour through. I mean, I'm definitely thinking top half. It's yes. definitely above, above Blades. Um, I'm leaning towards somewhere in the 789 range. Right now, number seven is... The enjoyable but fluffy Homewreckers Life on Mars, Batman Brave and the Bold, number 20. That is more of a Batman story, but it is also a Batman story where he's teaming up with other characters. Now, granted, here he's fighting another hero, but it does exist in that space. The book below it is the Doomsday Book, Detective Comics 572. Again, Batman teaming up with Slam Bradley and the Elongated Man, and in the very end, Sherlock Holmes. So I think we're dealing with similar themes in that area. This is better than both of those as a comic. Yes. 
I don't think it can quite beat a number six, Beautiful People. While I think Beautiful People might not be as good a comic, it is absolutely a Batman story. It has that stunning J.H. Williams art. So I think I'm inclined to put it as the new number seven. Works for me. I'm sold. Oh, boy. Okay. Now we're into a long one. So... You're going to have to bear with me on the credits on this one, everybody. Uh, It's going to be 20 minutes. Yeah. This is a 10-part story. Fortunately, most of them have the exact same creative team, which is pretty great. We are dealing with Super Heavy. This is Batman Volume 2, numbers 41 to 50, written by Scott Snyder, with Brian Azzarello on issue 44, and with James Tinian IV on issue 49. Art by Greg Capullo, with art by Jock on issue 44, and art by Yannick Paquette on 49 and the epilogue of number 50. Inks by Danny Miki, inks by Jock on 44, and Paquette on 49 and the epilogue in 50. Colors by FCO Plasencia, Lee Lawfridge on 44, and Nathan Fairbairn, Fairbairn excuse me, on the Paquette piece. Uh, Letters by Steve Wands, except for 44, which is Deron Bennett, and edited by Mark Doyle and Rebecca Taylor, with additional edits by Dave Wiglosh on number 44. Cover dates on this are August of 2015 through May of 2016. This is the final major arc of Scott Snyder's run on Batman. This is the arc where after Batman seemingly dies in a final battle with the Joker at the end of Endgame, Jim Gordon becomes a new Batman to fight a new threat calling himself Mr. Bloom while Bruce is alive and amnesiac. The story sprawls for 10 issues before the obvious return of Bruce Wayne as Batman. We've already done a Snyder Capullo arc back in episode one, zero year. That one was 12. This one's 10. A lot of our criticisms of zero year are going to come back into play with this because this is long and this is meandering. Yes. And at so many points, at least to me, it doesn't make sense. In the world of Batman, if we're going to abide by, you know, Batman logic and structure, like it doesn't make sense that we get some hand waving at why Gordon had to become Batman. Oh, well, you just, it just had to be you because you're, you're Jim Gordon. Uh, Okay, fine. They peg his age here at 46, which feels really wrong. Oh, no, you're absolutely right. They, before they said that age, I actually had made a note about why in the world would they let a guy who's at least in his late 50s and i was like oh wow they put him at 46 which means theoretically he's not all the he yeah that makes my brain the math on that makes my brain hurt because his yeah i i can't with the the, (laughs) how it lines up with the death of the waynes and bruce's age and things like that Bruce is supposed to be about 26, 25, 26. That's, again, New 52 math when they regressed everybody back to being about 25. And this is about a year after that. 
which means he was 20 when Bruce was born. So he wasn't quite 30 when the Waynes were murdered. That's. And he already had a career in Chicago. Yeah. And that means Barbara is her age is one. I mean, again, this is the problem with the new 52 and the weird timeline they tried to build. It immediately falls apart when you look at Batman because they didn't hard reboot him like they did so many of the other characters. So, yeah. So Gordon is supposed to be 46. I did love where Harvey's like, oh, shit, you look a lot worse than that. (laughs) You look (laughs) a lot older. Sorry, my bad. But yeah, they do that because like a 50 year old Batman would be nonsensical. So they just, they did their best and it still didn't work. They put him through all of this super secret training that we don't see any of. Like there's no sense of emotional investment in this. We don't see his sacrifice. He just shows up on the page as this sinewy, scrawny looking guy. And the weird thing too, his Batman doesn't read any different than a Bruce Wayne Batman. The sort of the the internal monologue, the discussions with the team, like all of that is the same. And so I I think plausibly that an Elseworld story of Jim Gordon as Batman would be interesting. I don't know how you get there from, again, a reasonable structured Gotham and uh, Batman universe. I think it's an interesting story, but it has to be Jim Gordon, the character. There has to be something different. There has to be some essence of meaning here aside from, well, we killed off Batman for a bit. Let's just fucking put Gordon in there and give him a big bat suit, a mecha bat. Sure, let's fucking do that. That buddy of mine, former co-worker at Dewey's Comic City, couple times WMQ guest, John Bush, sent me an email after the first episode this week some talking points, some stuff. And he mentioned this story in relation to agreeing with our statements about zero year being too long. And he mentioned this story and he pointed out that that bat mech looks kind of like a buff version of Arthur from the tick with those pointy ah. ears. And I was like, and I looked at it, it's like, wow, actually. And with the blue colors, it actually looks like somebody took the tick and Arthur and smushed them together and created a bat mech out of them. I honestly wonder, I mean, Gordon calls out that the suit doesn't look like Batman in the first issue. I don't understand. Is it because he's not Batman and so they had to do that? Or I I don't understand why you just didn't make the dang suit look more like bat armor. I have no idea, but I I will say I appreciate Gordon. I would not have done this as a writer. I would not have the the nerve, the gumption. Gordon says, this is the dumbest idea in the history of Gotham, and I 100% agree. Could you imagine? I mean, I don't know what about the cover to any of these individual issues or the trade would make someone who's not terribly familiar with Batman pick this up randomly if they saw it in the comic shop or at Barnes and Noble. But could you imagine picking this up with no frame of reference in a book that starts in media res with Jim Gordon as Batman and it's the one of those sins of modern serialized comic book storytelling because this would make no sense and would be completely confusing to anyone who was not steeped in the earlier part of this run. To me, it's, it's symptomatic not only of that problem, but just the idea that there, there doesn't seem to be any basically new ideas in the last 10 years of what to do with Batman because they talk so much in this piece about, 
Oh, well, the the scars of the last Joker attack. We pick up something from Tinian's run. Oh, it's the scars from the Joker war. And then in King's run, uh, the scars from the war of jokes and riddles. Come on. You guys have got to move beyond large existential crises to Gotham and tell smaller, intimate stories with actual meaning. I think there is a lot to say about Super Heavy and very little of it is good. But I will say the interlude where they actually attempt to tell a real story, a real story with human emotions. When uh, I read this in, uh, in the trades, two trades, by the way, three trades, if you want to include uh, 51 and 52. And that's, that's too much. That's too much. Just like zero year. But whatever issue that was, it's just 44 yeah whatever issue it was uh batman just solving a murder and it turns out it's just this heartbreaking chain of events and just that beautiful bit of poetry in there at the end it's it's a kid who took this bloom pill and he grew wings and he thought he could fly and he wanted to fly from gotham and he wanted to fly from his troubles and it wore off and he fell and he died Another thing we'll talk about, I don't like so much of the science fiction here, but in that one issue, in that one moment, I was okay with it because it spoke to a human emotion. It was something of meaning. And the rest of this, the other, I don't know, 35 issues in this arc, zero, not a damn thing. The emotional heavy lifting in this arc is given to Amnesiac Bruce And there is no emotion in the Gordon part of this story. Zero. Minimal at best. Jim has a few moments of doubt, but that's it. The rest of it is a story engine to move along the Mr. Bloom part. So you can get to the end where Bruce has to sacrifice the happy life and reclaim the mantle of the bat. Now, I'll take back my statements that I just said about nothing else having any emotional impact. The Alfred stuff in here is great. Yes, it is heartbreaking. Yes, I finally had the son. I I had my boy back and you're telling me I have to give him away. Like that was tough. Yeah, Bruce being happy. And knowing on some level, there are nature versus nurture questions here because there are moments, even with his memory, this isn't even amnesia. His brain has literally been rewired. So he has no recollection of anything, but he still has these moments where he puts together clues. He still has, there's something at the back of his brain that is still a bit of Batman. And you see him fighting that. You see him because he knows, he knows someone's going to say something. The wrong thing is going to be said, and he's going to have to go back to that life. And he doesn't want it. He wants to be happy. And that is why Batman loses in this story. Because he has to sacrifice his happiness for saving the city. In the end, he says, for Batman to live, Bruce Wayne must always die. And that's tragic. I thought the writing there could have been a little bit tighter. That, that, was, that was too on the nose. But the idea is good. Yes. Yeah, I mean, again, this is a 10-issue story, so there's there's a lot to touch on here. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of discussion throughout this from Jerry Powers, who is the head of, I'm not sure if they're Powers International at this point, or Powers, 
whatever the company is, about how Batman needs to be more than what he's been. He's been so small. And the theme is that Batman isn't this small thing. Batman inspires us all to be greater. And that's, again, that's a good theme, but it's drowned out and has to be spelled out because of all this other crap that's going on in this book. Yeah, and there's conflict with powers and there's not conflict with powers. The reason why there is conflict is not really spelled out and it just goes away and they're okay at the end. Well, are you familiar with why that name is significant? Why the powers last name is significant in the Batman mythos? You know me, I'm an idiot. Well, it's actually a reference to Batman Beyond. Wayne Enterprises is consumed by a corporation owned by a guy named Derek Powers. It becomes Wayne Powers, and Powers is corrupt and evil and becomes a supervillain. He's the guy who's responsible for Terry McGinnis's father's death. It's one of his hitmen who kills McGinnis's father. So giving her that name immediately puts people who know Batman beyond, she's immediately suspicious because you know she's a power. You know that her, I think in another, in either the annual or in somewhere else in this period, she mentions, I think, a nephew named Derek. Uh So, you know, her nephew is an evil son of a bitch. So the reader who knows that stuff is immediately on guard because you're expecting her to turn out to be villainous versus just wrong. And she lands somewhere just kind of in the middle. And it's weird, and I don't care for it. And the other thing that, and and listen, this is going to get us the same kind of eyebrows that we get in a lot of the print bat chat columns when we talk about not being overly in love with some of the new characters. Mr. Bloom sucks. (laughs) He looks cool. He looks Uh, really cool. Like half of the ideas Scott Snyder ever had, the shit looks cool, doesn't make any fucking sense. Okay, I'm going to go on a a momentary ranty tangent here. Ooh, a ranty tangent. Because the idea that anyone can be a supervillain, that it doesn't necessarily matter who's under the mask, that it was the reason Steve Ditko and Stan Lee parted ways on Spider-Man because Stan Lee wanted the Green Goblin to turn out to be Norman Osborn and Ditko wanted him to be some nobody because of the banality of evil that it's not always someone who's related to the hero in some way I understand that But this story, it spends 10 issues building this thing. Mr. Bloom has all these angles and he knows this and he knows that. And yeah, it turns out that the original Mr. Bloom was somebody who we know. But that final Mr. Bloom, we never know. We never find out who it is. The original some friggin guy. Yeah. Or or woman. Daryl, the original Bloom is like, I never even saw their their face. They could be a man, a woman or anything. It's like, why have we cared? Why have we been spending all this time? building this mystery about mr bloom when in the end it didn't friggin matter because uh because it looked cool he did and you know i commented on it back when we did zero year i for some reason thought that there was some connection between bloom and dr death because they have that same frame and the the stretching body parts and dr death says something about my blooming And it's like, no, no, I misremembered that. There is no connection there. And it would have made a lot more sense if 
there was some connection. And or if it turned out that Daryl Gutierrez, Jim Gordon's man in the chair, who is the original Mr. Bloom, was somehow controlling all the Mr. Blooms. Because that would explain how this Mr. Bloom knew all this stuff about Gordon, how he had an in with the machines that Powers was working with. It all would have tied back to Daryl being in on it. And I'd forgotten that it wasn't Daryl. In my head, I remembered Daryl being Mr. Bloom. So I was reading, it's like, oh, okay, this all does line up on the reread. And then I guess the end is like, wait, no, no, I'm wrong. <laughs> it doesn't make sense at all. We don't spend that much time with Bruce compared to Gordon. And the Bruce stuff is the most engaging stuff in this story. And the Duke Thomas stuff. Although the problem with a lot of the Duke Thomas stuff is we're dancing in between the raindrops of We Are Robin, the Duke Thomas book that was coming out at the time. So there's all these references to things that are going on with Duke elsewhere that don't get fleshed out because there's a whole other book that's about Duke and the Robin. I did not find the Bruce stuff to be particularly engaging because it seemed so trite. It seemed so, oh, look, he's happy. He's he's working at this youth group shelter. He's found a woman who loves him and who doesn't have any other character development aside from uh, her dad was a bad guy. And she shows up at precisely the right moment to uh, wipe his brain at the end. It just just seems all very contrived. It's more engaging than the Gordon stuff, at least. Oh, oh, for sure. Also, a tip to writers of all stripes out there. Don't have two of your principal characters' names be one letter apart. You've got Julie Madison, who is Bruce's girlfriend. And you have Julia Perry, really Julia Pennyworth who's working with Gordon. Julie and Julia, there's a couple of times where one name is said, I'm like, what? Why are they bringing her? Oh, they mean the other. Okay. There are any number of Batman love interests you could have used aside from Julie Madison. You could have used Vicki Vale. You could have used Linda Page. You could have used Silver Safe Frickin' Cloud, who would have worked if you wanted to bring in Julia Pennyworth. But before we move on to anything else, We do have to take a moment to look at what I believe was going to be a recurring theme and bit on this show. It's time for Shark Watch. Oh, Shark Watch. Because last episode, we talked about the Joker's five-way revenge and Batman getting thrown into a tank and fighting a shark. And I'm reading this comic and Batman is Batman. Jim Gordon Batman is fighting the triads. And what does he have to do? He has to break open a tank and free a shark. And boy... It had never occurred to me how often Batman fights sharks. But I think that all goes back to Batman 66 and that shark repellent bat spray. I believe we're going to have to call out every time Batman fights a shark. Absolutely. Shark watch. And I think it's going to happen more than we think. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. I love bits. I will say there was an additional shark. Like last time we tried to attempt uh, Snyder and Capullo. I fucked up the readings. But this time I read too much. So I went into the third trade, the volume 10, the epilogue, and that had a taste of like alternate reality Batmans. And I think you see Snyder playing with some of the things that he's going to do in death metal. I think death metal was actually mentioned or some metal. There's definitely a metal of there's metal is mentioned a couple of times in here. I mean, you get Batmanium, the superconductive 
metal. There's a lot of crazy science fiction in this story. And while I'm not as averse to science fiction in my Batman as you are, I still think you can have Batman have some tech that's a little beyond, but this is a lot of crazy tech. Way beyond. Let me go. I'll finish this point and then I'll do the science fiction point. But anyway, in one of these alternate future Batmans, wherever it is, somewhere buried in the 10th volume of the Snyder run, instead of a T-Rex in the cave as a trophy, there's a giant mechanical shark or shark with some kind of mechanical augments or something. So We've we got a second shark hovering in this story, literally and figuratively. Yeah. And one of the penguins' fellow crime bosses is Warren White, the great white shark, but he's a minor bat character who we will eventually discuss at other points. And one addendum to your shark report, that motherfucker had horns. Yes, it did. Yeah, the oh boy, the gangs here were a thing. This was five pounds of story pumped up to be 15 pounds of story and then crammed into a 10 pound bag. It's the turducken of Batman stories, except turducken is a chicken and a duck and a turkey. It's like putting the chicken in the turkey and then trying to cram the duck around the whole thing. Yeah, (laughs) it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't. So the science fiction stuff, this is excessively science fiction like i could stop at the mechs and i'd be okay but bruce has and this this again might be in the 10th trade but bruce has a car with active camouflage that's oh i can change the way the car looks oh look i'm in the camouflaged bat truck now it just looks like a regular truck on the road whatever the whole idea of cloning himself which is explored in another story. Apparently he eventually perfects the cloning uh, idea. The idea of saving his memories and putting his memories in, in a new body with that and how that's that's used to bring the old Bruce back to life. I, I will say that they logically point out if Batman truly does not remember who he is, you couldn't just put him in the suit and then throw him out there in the world. That, that would not end well. And I guess anything else would have been just some contrived, stupid thing to get his memories back, like sitting him down in the cave and like showing him stuff. And then like it would just like suddenly come back to him. So that would have been dumb. But all of the science fiction is too much. And the the last fight specifically is it's got a real doomsday problem and that the thing just never stops. And there are no stakes in it, and there's they work in a collider. Ba- I have it noted as Batmech versus Bloom Kaiju. Yeah. One last, and speaking of contrived and memories, we haven't mentioned the one scene. Well, it's it's a long scene. The bit with the Joker, which is never dealt with again, in that the Joker also has no memories, and he and Bruce meet on this bench that they're both going to and the joker also is clearly kind of struggling with there being something wrong in that jokerness sort of eating at the back of his brain but it's never explained anywhere how he goes from being this sort of he's a butcher to being the joker again when he pops up during the king run and he's back to being full-on joker with the bleached skin and the green hair and everything the dionysium the thing that reverted them literally resets your body did the joker somehow 
dump himself back into those chemicals to become the Joker again, it's never explained or explored anywhere, which in all fairness, might not be the worst thing in the world because it's just what it is. But still, would, would it be possible for both the King and Tinian runs to take place before Super Heavy? No, <laughs> no, it's just it's a bit of continuity that they all wanted to ignore because he's the friggin' Joker and you need him back and nobody wanted to figure out a way around it. Listen, that's that's just that's going to be the, the way we have to play it. Only way I could come up with explaining it would involve invoking the Jeff Johns, Jason Faybook three Jokers. And I don't <laughs> want to think about that unless we're being paid to. Ah, that's that's a book for the Jason Todd tier for sure. I, I already had to review that thing for the site. I don't want to think about that sucker again until we have to. But yes, are, we're gonna we're gonna put a list of the Jason Todd tier books. You know, <laughs> we're not gonna read these unless you pay money and you you pick one of them. You get to pick one. Yes, we will be rolling out the Patreon. The Patreon will be out by the time this episode airs, but you will see. For those of you who haven't looked at our Patreon, which you should, at $10 a month, after three months at the Jason Todd tier, you can pick a story that we will build an episode around. You get to pick that number one tentpole story, and we will fill in the other two. But yeah, Three Jokers, that one's on there. Widening Gyre, the mm -hmm. sequel to Batman and Superman versus Vampires and Werewolves, which I still believe... You're, you're, you're fucking with me? That thing can't exist? <laughs> okay, but I think we have reached the point where... Arr, it'd be time to put it on the bard. Okay, well, listen. Zero years at 11, and this isn't better than zero. It held my attention more than zero year. Okay. It's not as long as zero year. See, that helped. That does help. But also, zero year had, I think some more generally interesting stuff. Like I liked the Red Hood gang stuff. I liked the portrayal of the Riddler, if not the Riddler's scheme. I liked that Snyder got that the Riddler really thinks he's the smartest guy in the room all the time. And he wasn't just, you know, this guy spouting riddles. He had more to his shtick. I just, I, Mr. Bloom bugs me because he's just a pointless <laughs> villain. And he's coming back in Task Force Z. I gotta wonder... Which of those Wait, Mr. What? The the upcoming task uh, again, upcoming as of the time of this recording, Task Force Z with the zombified Arkham villains working with Jason Todd. A Mr. Bloom is one of Task Force Z. I did not even notice that. I didn't pick up on that. I remember Bane and Arkham Knight and like some things I couldn't immediately place. It's Bane, Arkham Knight, Mr. Bloom, Man Bat. And another one I'm not remembering. Well, but, that's going to be weird. Yeah. What about this ranks it above zero year for you? Uh, it held your attention more. Fair. Th that's it. That is simply it. But I think there are things in here that make me more angry than anything in zero year, like the core concepts of the book. But then also it's got Batman 44, which I would probably rank individually. That would be top five. That is so good. 
It is. And I, we've had to spend so much time talking about other stuff, but I've read a lot of Brian Azzarello and I run hot and cold on Azzarello, but that is a really good story. You get this thing with the guy. I mean, he goes to everyone. He goes to the cops. He goes to Bruce Wayne. And then he winds up going to the Penguin to try to get out from under the gang that's threatening his shop. And everyone lets him down. Yep. It's it's tragic and no one listens. And in the end, it's got this Batman who goes back into the Narrows and who listens. And that's, again, the Batman I like. And and it was a mystery. How did this guy wind up in this place falling from, you know, the sky? And Batman solves it. On the strength of that issue, I I can see putting it above zero year. I don't know how much higher I'm willing to go than that. I mean, it's probably, again, that single issue is probably better than the next couple of single issues. But we can't rank this whole thing based on one issue in the middle. That's true. That's true. But we can come along and maybe one day put Batman 44 up there. Some point when we're at a point where we want to look at the list and maybe realize that this list is insane because how did that story wind up there? Batman, we might break out 44 because despite it being super heavy part four, it's really an intro. Yeah. And it's it's a standalone. Right. So are we going to put this right above zero year? I could even see putting it above the secret of the waiting graves. Secret of the waiting graves is a very basic story i don't see putting it above doomsday book doomsday book is just too much fun yeah and secret of the waiting graves is, is cute and doesn't make me mad let's do right above zero year okay like so this like if, if if i could do 10.9 i would do it if i could push i would do it but but yeah let's let's do that at 11 all right so this is now number 11 super heavy batman volume two numbers 41 to 50 now on to the final story. This is Cold Days. This is Batman Volume 3, numbers 51 to 53. The writer is Tom King. Pencils and inks by Lee Weeks. Colors by Elizabeth Breitweiser. Letters by Clayton Cowles. And edited by Jamie S. Rich and Brittany Halser. The cover date is September through October of 2018. In this story, Bruce Wayne is on the jury for the trial of Mr. Freeze, who Batman brought in for the murder of three women. Only Bruce has begun to doubt that Freeze is actually guilty. This becomes a jury room drama of Bruce as the lone holdout in the jury. It's basically one angry Batman. This is one of the shorter arcs in King's 85 plus issue run on Batman and is probably the strongest story in that main thrust of the series. I was impressed with this story when I read it and I am still impressed today. It is, it is tight. It tells a story with, as I talked about, real human emotions and impact. And it's clever, right? It's not just Batman going up and beating some folks up. It's not, oh, here's the latest attack on Gotham. It is just a story that takes place in that universe that, again, doesn't involve some larger existential crisis. And it all makes sense. 
Bruce realizes he fucked up and he fucked up bad because his mind is all fucked up because he got ditched and he's dealing with that uh, fallout. And so what does he do? How is he going to get Mr. Freeze off? Well, he's going to weasel his way onto the jury and then try to convince 11 other people that Batman fucked up. And he does so passionately and in a way that makes sense and he, he bringing in you know religion and and all of these things and pointing out that batman is not infallible batman is a human batman can make mistakes he could have possibly made one here you know bruce can't come out and say oh yeah i fucked up real bad how many complaints do i have with this i think i, I think i just have just the one but other than that man what a just a great oh there's the other one that popped in my brain i have two complaints but it is such a moving wonderful read and this is one of my all-time favorites i probably should have mentioned this at the top this is most of the same creative team from our current number three batman annual number two from batman volume three some of these days weeks did the first half of that book the flashback half versus the flash forward half i feel like this is an almost direct repudiation of Grant Morrison's Bat God. I like a lot of what Morrison does, but Morrison wrote an infallible Batman. Morrison's Batman is the Batman who literally programmed a backup personality subconsciously into his head in case anybody ever fucked his brain up so much that he lost control. It's cool. And that's cool for an arc. And it's cool because Grant Morrison can write that character. They are a writer who can pull off these crazy-ass giant concepts. But a lot of other writers can't, and it becomes lazy and boring when Batman is that infallible in the hands of a lesser writer. And so King right here is flat out saying, Batman's just a man. Batman isn't God. Batman can fuck up. And to have Bruce Wayne make that argument is just stunningly creative and meaningful. It's an oft-quoted line, but the line from Batman begins, why do we fall down, Master Wayne? So we can learn to pick ourselves back up. If Batman never falls down, he never has to learn to pick himself back up. And even a Batman who's been at this for this many years needs to remember that he can still learn something. And this was a way out of a problem that did not involve his fists. And again, just speaks to how creative this story is and how much I love it. He brought this problem on himself by overusing his fists. I mean, the scenes you see of him with Freeze are brutal to a point that is even beyond what you would standard expect out of Batman. It is a Frank Miller level violent fascist Batman. It's not a standard Batman. And that is framed as this is something wrong. This is not Batman as he should be. Although this should be a moment for Bruce to think, I know my heart's been broken. Does that mean I should really take it out on the scumbags of Gotham? Could have have had a little more introspection here. Yeah, I think that might have been stuff done off page, which is why he's doing this. I mean, this is him literally exercising a demon. And destroying a urinal. Yes. Yeah, he has a couple of moments where that rage comes out. The... Oh, oh, my, my, my two complaints. Okay, uh, I've got a couple of little ones myself, but they're really niggling little points. But let's hear what yours are. All right. So the thing that astounds me, the thing that just just blows my mind, Bruce Wayne, millionaire playboy, uh, suave, sophisticated, sharp dresser, 
does not, Elizabeth Breitweiser, he does not dress like he's about to go on Family Feud. Bruce Wayne would not be caught dead in a, what is that, salmon jewel tone dress shirt and a black tie. Never in a million years. That's some of the worst coloring choices when it comes to a man's clothing or wardrobe that I have ever seen. And that has always stuck out to me in this book. I love the story. Terrible coloring decision. Alfred would never let him out of the house like that. Oh, absolutely not. Uh, Master Wayne, I'll have to burn that shirt. Uh, you said you had another... Yeah, a, a couple of facial expressions there in the jury room. He just likes, he just looks flat, almost looks like he's constipated, like his, uh, like his butthole's real sore or something. I don't know what it is. Uh, yeah, it was a stretch, but I got it in there. You got it. Uh, but literally his, his expression is just flat. Like his lips look pursed. It's really weird. And it comes up, I think at least twice. So some of the facial expressions are off, but Jesus Christ, that coloring is an abomination. My quibbles have specifically to do one with a continuity moment and Ooh. one with I think King has some dialogue issues in the courtroom scene and some of the cross-examination. Quibble one about continuity, and this is something that comes up a couple of times in the King run. He says that Bruce was 10 when his parents were killed. Bruce was eight. That does slide. It's been given different values over the years, but it, it was pretty well settled in as eight until King started writing when suddenly it became 10 again. But Bruce Wayne was eight when his parents were killed, not 10. Secondly, and this is stuff that I picked up from a couple of things that I've been listening to and reading lately. The lawyer, when they're cross-examining Bullock, the prosecuting attorney calls him Officer Bullock. Bullock's a detective lieutenant. You just lowered his rank four notches, which might be something a defense attorney would do, but a prosecutor would absolutely call him at least lieutenant, if not detective lieutenant Bullock, to give weight to the jury what he's saying. And the prosecutor would have asked him to testify in any number of other cases. They would be intimately familiar with one another. That's absolutely an off note there. Also, they talk about the coroner in Gotham City. Gotham is a major East Coast city. Multiple don't have, coroners. Not even that. Coroner is, generally speaking, an elected position. Gotham would have a medical examiner, That's not right. a coroner. Yeah. Coroner tends to be small towns where it's an elected or appointed position. Not You don't need any training to be a coroner. Your town doctor is usually a coroner. A medical examiner, you receive specific training to be a medical examiner. You're a forensic pathologist, or you are a person who's had specific training in that field. Gotham would have a medical examiner, not a coroner. Yeah, it's shorthand in the story for the person who did the autopsy. And that's, uh, that's a hard label to come around. It absolutely is. But I literally was just listening to a podcast where they were discussing the difference between coroner and medical examiner. I listened to it the day before I reread this story. So recency bias, but it struck a sour note because I'm like, there's no way Gotham would have a coroner. They would have multiple medical examiners, not even multiple coroners. I mean, maybe they have a coroner for, but even then, no, you'd always have a medical examiner because any accidental death could be something more you'd want to have, especially in friggin' Gotham. You'd want somebody trained in looking into this weird shit. 
Yeah, yeah. Bad stuff happens all the time here. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? That, that is Gotham. Again, those are the most minor of quibbles. There are moments in part two where there's these one-page splashes where you get the dialogue of one of the other jurors talking to Bruce as Bruce is slowly beginning to win them over. And again, it's this little intimate character moment. That's what makes this story so interesting. Listen, Tom King is many things. Subtle is not one of them. Tom King writes what are, for all intents and purposes, superhero operas. These are characters with big emotions in big stories. The fact that this and, as we talked about before, some of these days, are smaller, more intimate stories are what makes them stand out in the middle of all of the storm and batarangs of Batcat and Bane and Flashpoint Thomas Wayne. Ugh. Yeah. And what's smart is King also introduces something that might seem off and then immediately answers it. When Mr. Freeze puts on his armor and goes out searching for Batman. Well, you know, why would he do that if he's not guilty? And then immediately he's like, well, the reason would be, and it's like, okay, that makes sense. And this story slots in nicely to the big arc that King is telling, but doesn't require you to have read any of the stuff before or get any of the stuff after. You do need to know that Bruce just had his heart broken. Uh, yeah, I think that's about it. Aside from the fact that Selena just left him at the altar, that's the only bit of necessary continuity in this story. You know, talking about the answers and explanations and things, it's all about creating reasonable doubt. This certainly borrows from 12 Angry Men. Like, there's no way around that in terms of you have individual discussions with individual jurors who have a point of view and Bruce is trying to win them over. You could have turned this into an OGM and it could have easily worked where you get more into that drama, more into that deliberation discussion. I think at three issues of a double shipping, right? Um, yeah. Book, I think it was perfect. Just the exact right length. But yeah, it's again, a, just a logical, reasonable story that focuses on Bruce's mistakes Bruce's attempt to correct those mistakes and the fundamental concept of reasonable doubt. Issue 53, the final part, is basically a monologue. There are half a dozen speech or narrative bubbles from any character who isn't Batman, isn't Bruce in that story. And yet it works. It's a really well done speech. It, of course, raised a bunch of hackles in various places because, oh, look, Batman, he's an atheist. How could Batman? It's like, no. A, his specific talk about losing his faith in God, he's talking about it as a child who just lost his parents. I can't imagine there are many kids who saw their parents gunned down in front of them who would not lose their faith in a good and just God after that. And he believes that people look at Batman as a God is not him putting himself on a pedestal. It's the opposite. And that's a really heartbreaking concept that Bruce knows he's not perfect. And he still goes on. It's, that's life-affirming. But it's heartbreaking to think that what he puts himself through. 
And I was reading that specifically that third issue and thinking the same thing. Like, this would be a great monologue, but it's it's not overly talking. This is not a, a Bendis sort of book where it's just paragraphs upon paragraphs of text. They're just short, simple sentences with can, a lot of meaning. You can read that entire monologue issue in 15 minutes in a standard comics length. Bendis would, this would have been a novel. Morrison, it would have felt like the clown at midnight. It would have been a lot of a lot more words. Listen, we're gonna talk about a lot of Tom King, and we're not gonna pull any punches on a lot of Tom King. But we, I think, have just started out with probably the two best stories in a read a four year. I think it's a four year run. Yeah, there are not any stories I would consider close to Annual Number Two and Cold Days. There's this, and I think I liked the first couple of issues in in Nightmares before that thing just sort of just drove itself into the ground. But otherwise, it's all just kind of just the same shit. I liked Annual 4, which is this series of vignettes of like a week in the life of Batman, because you get a lot of little bits and pieces there that are interesting. I'm trying to think the war of jokes and riddles is doesn't particularly do much for me. Oh, well, Batman's a fascist who sides with Joker. I mean, uh, Riddler. Sure. Yeah. The, the Thomas Wayne Batman should have stayed in Flashpoint. Uh, Rooftops, as I recall, is pretty good. There's a, a two parter with Bruce and Selena. That's pretty good early on in the run. Yeah. And uh, and date night's not bad. Yeah. Some of the that's yeah, the date night, and there's a a couple issues with Wonder Woman, but again, they're not as memorable as either Cold Days or Annual Two. No, there are bits and pieces that are enjoyable, but the stuff that's best in the King Run is stuff that isn't part of that giant main arc. It's the, the stuff when he takes a step back and it becomes less about this this plot and this trauma. Except for this this story, which deals with trauma very, very well. Yes. A lot of the other King stuff does not deal with trauma particularly well. But this story does. Are we going to put Heroes in Crisis in that Jason Todd tier? Oh, I'm not sure if there's quite enough Batman for Heroes in Crisis. We have just said that all you all Batman has to do is make an appearance. Oh, man, that one might wind up in there, too. <laughs> and by the way it's not like we're gonna have this list and these are the only things you can pick pick a random story that you just happen to love pick, yeah yeah if, if you think there's a great batman story that is underappreciated absolutely back us and recommend that story because i would love to read that story again because let me be frank unless we're dealing with something from before 1983 i've probably read it the, the point though is we're not going to read a widening gyre dark knight strikes three- again Dark Dark Knight Strikes Again and Three Jokers all in the same week no. uh, because we would uh, we would hate ourselves and we'd hate this show and we don't want to hate this show because this show is fucking fun because I don't have to do any work. <laughs> so I think we're just about up oh, and there goes my timer. So we are just at that point. It's time to put on the ball. All right. So we're, we're looking up near the top here. Deuce. We're thinking that we're thinking above Red Rain. Red Rain is good for shits and giggles and the very best kind of shits and giggles. But man, Cold Days just hits me in that just core emotional spot. Just as being so satisfying, being so willing to break out of the mold of what a monthly Batman story can be. 
it's excellent. And I think it's the very best of Tom King. And I just love it. I love it to death. Yeah, I, it, it's still a mystery. You've got a Batman mystery and you've got a Batman solving a mystery twice, solving it wrong and then having to go back and solve it right. I can definitely, definitely go for that. So we've now ranked three more stories. Our list is now up to 24 stories. That's two dozen stories. Yeah, we're, 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 we're making it. So that wraps up another episode. Next week, Will is going to take the reins as we serve up an episode with some of his favorite bat art. Ooh, that's exciting. Uh, you can follow this podcast on Twitter now at Bat Chat Comics. And if you want to hear more of just my general ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and my cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I am at Will Nevin. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. Thank you again for another fun night, Will. As always, an absolute pleasure. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.